Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to this installment of Masters of Craft. Um, this is a very special episode because it was our very first guest in a brand new space with a brand new crew. Um, and you know what? Murphy's Law showed up and um, we hiccuped in the audio a little bit. But we wanted to salvage the conversation because Aaron was so, 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 so dope. So we actually ran this entire conversation through multiple AI filters. So you're going to witness the wonders of some artificial intelligence, audio editing, you know, capability. Thanks to the hands of Caleb Thorpe, um, my co-producer and, um, and, you know, partner in this. And also, uh, Aaron's just dope. So, um, as you listen, you might hear some echoes, some weird things going on, but you know what? It's all good. It's all good, baby. So whether you're watching or listening, please enjoy this conversation. And also don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, share, all those other things. Click as many buttons as you can, please. All right. Chris Dens is out. Aaron Levant is in. Let's begin. You know, I'm a big believer of not subscribing to cultural norms. I think there's so many things in our world that have been manufactured to create consumer behavior. Some of these things are pleasant. I'm not knocking idea of buying your mother flowers on Mother's Day or you know, things that are pleasant, but in general, there are things that are designed to drive mass amounts of consumer behavior or to get you to subscribe to cultural norms. And I like making my own judgments on the things that I want to participate in that I feel organically motivated or, or interested in versus like, oh, everyone else says X, so you should too. We intentionally are creating an environment where our customers, the majority of which, 99% of which are unhappy. Right. But for some reason, in this case, that's a good thing. And they wanted more, right? It made them want it more. So it, it's the reverse psychology of everything else that's happening in consumer culture. We want to satisfy. In a way, we want to dissatisfy. The majority of people can't have it. Then you know that thing they wanted was hot. Greetings, everybody, and welcome to, um, you know what? This is a really interesting moment. Innovation Crush presents Masters of Crap. Thank you for having me. Um, so for those who may not know, I like to, I want to play a little game of pretend. Let's pretend you were still 19, but you had to also introduce your adult self currently. <laughs> Well, how would you, how would you introduce yourself? Probably as succinctly as I could and I try to move on for the moment. So I'm no longer at the center of attention, but I guess I'd be, I'm Aaron Levan and I'm a, a serial entrepreneur from here in Los Angeles. Nice. Um, that, and, and uh, so it's interesting that that has been a thread of your career, right? This sort of purveyor of culture. So, I mean, walk me through a little bit of the origin story, you know, cause I heard there was, there was some rough upbringings and then you kind of put that into an artistry. Uh, I wouldn't say rough upbringings in that sense, but um, yeah, look, I um, I started off growing up here in the Valley in LA. I, at an early age, was drawn to the same things that most you know young men were drawn to, interested in, in music, particularly hip-hop. I was interested in graffiti. I was interested in BMX and skateboard culture. I was interested in all these kind of things at the, at the fray of popular culture, and even at that time. You know, there's a big negative connotation around something like hip hop where like, you know, my first Tupac C, my dad ripped it up, threw it away. And it was just like, you know, there's that time when like, what was it like? Um, my mom did that with Too Short. Too Short was much more, <laughs> much more graphic than Tupac per se. But, um, you know, all the things I was interested in were considered, you know, no one was, there was no Banksy in, you know, the mid nineties. There was no, you know, rappers making billions of dollars. All these things were kind of like, it was the point where you had like, um, it was uh, Al Gore's wife's name it was like running over CDs with Tipper. Friend. Tipper Gore was running over CDs with a with a Steve Rollers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was like all some of those it was considered by parents and by authority, you know, as 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 kind of bad things. And you know, but I was drawn to those things. So through an interest in that, and then you know, getting involved with graffiti, getting arrested, getting involved with just normal kind of like teenage flipping shit. I ended up getting kicked out of high school at an early age, at like sixteen. And uh, around that time, 
I had learned myself at home how to do Photoshop, Illustrator, Dreamweaver, which is an early Adobe program, how to build websites, After Effects for motion graphics, Adobe Premiere for video editing, just kind of self-taught the, the creative suite in early kind of like home computing era. And I started publishing a website at home called westcoastgraph.com. It's kind of like a local graffiti blog. Off of that, I started making t-shirts and doing early e-commerce in the late 90s. And these are all just kind of like homegrown things kind of early before most people were doing that stuff. Where, like, where, where was that entrepreneurial spirit birthed in you? Because like, you know, if I got kicked out of high school at 16, I'd, I'd probably be on drugs right now. <laughs> so, um, but a lot of people don't like flip, you know, that early, those kinds of early childhoods into, you know, business. So yeah. what, what I don't really know what it was. Um, you know, I didn't really have too many entrepreneurs in my family. I guess my grandfather was entrepreneurial. Um, I never met him. He died at a young age, but you know that might have been in my. I never life. met him either. So yeah, <laughs> I uh, you know even before that, I would I try to self publish a car magazine when I was in the fourth grade. Uh, you know, I was just been interested in, in baking stuff. I don't know really where that came from, but it's just kind of something I was interested in doing things. And I understood very early on that you do things, you try to monetize them for whatever reason, and whether it's something I learned off TV or learned at school or just kind of innately had like that car magazine I published in the fourth grade. I took to my next door neighbor who was an Arby's franchisee. And I asked if he'd buy the back cover ad. So that was my first sale, right? So I knew that I had to have like an ad to make the magazine real. Just looking at other magazines and throws me out of the back cover. So it's like kind of understanding those things. So not really sure where it came from, but it's been in me. Slang and Arby's in fourth grade. Yeah. Um, I wish I still had a copy of that. You should. Like, I'm sure like, you got to find that somewhere. Yeah. Um, let's fast forward, obviously. Uh, one of the reasons I'm infatuated with your path, uh, I love network. Um, kind of walk us through what it is, and then I'll ask you some other notes. Like, yeah, but so a lot of ways you could describe it, and uh, for better or for worse, it's a difficult company to describe. The elevator pitch has been since the beginning, so today's the millennial Gen Z mobile first version of QVC. So what you know was QVC to my parents, the grandparents' generation, where you have Kathy Lee Gifford selling a sweater on the television, you're calling it over the phone to make the order. We have. You know, DJ Khaled selling a pair of Beats headphones of a live stream bowl for environment of native commerce, right? So the products, the demographic, the talent is different, but the idea is saying that, you know, your live shopping is an engaging, entertaining way to shop different than going to the mall or buying something off of Amazon, right? And now we've just kind of modernized that for this new audience and, and made it culturally relevant. Um, you know, when I think about how you got there, you know, from the trade show era of agenda and then collaborating greed on a number of like trade shows across many cultures, right? Like they have the jewelry show. There's just so many different uh, angles of, of what they do um, and what you've done. I, I think about this idea of going from an analog experience, like boots on the ground, people yeah. eating and shaking hands to now you're like, oh, there's this is in my phone now. Yeah. Um, what was the transition like for you? Like going from idea to execution? Yeah. I think for me, I spent a good 15 years of my career building IRL events where I was bringing together brands and retailers and media companies together in a room, like a convention center, B2B trade show, like Agenda, which was one of my first businesses. And then I evolved that later on into creating ComplexCon, which was the same brands and the same retailers, but serving different purpose instead of meeting to make wholesale orders and they were meeting with consumers, right? And a continual evolution over 15 years to eventually going where the ball was going. So first, you know, B2B was a thing, that consumer was a thing, and then as consumer evolved, digital was a thing. So how do I evolve these relationships that I built over 20 years with these amazing brands, founders, creatives, and just change the service that I was offering them? And then, you know, digital, I believe, sells the future. So in 2018, when I quit 
the trade show industry, I really wanted to chase this digital marketplaces, mobile first, live streaming, all these things that are new for me, but the relationships, the brands, the curation is really the same, just bring it to a new format. And, you know, while it's a steep learning curve, it's it's the continual evolution in that line that of those. Yeah. I, you know, I love that as experienced as you are, right, to launch the next thing takes a little bit of like retooling, reimagining, relearning. Yeah. Like, what was the biggest hump you had to get over personally? And like, was it understanding tech stacks? Was it understanding like, would this work? <laughs> yeah. You know, you could spend so much time learning how a convention center works or then go from B2B to consumer, learning how ticketing works and marketing to consumers. And technology is by far the most difficult transition I've made in my career. Some of those things with one degree of separation of each other from consumer event to B2B event is different, but close enough where I had a grasp within the say This was basically starting from scratch. So I had to basically, you know, figuratively go back to school and get a new doctorate in a very short truncated period of time. What I had 10 or 15 years in learn previous. And went to fifth grade. Yeah. Nice. And start from scratch. And, you know, there's a reason that the prize of technology and the asset values are so high, except you get it right. It's infinitely scalable. Right. And, you know, I didn't understand, you know, engineering. I didn't understand product. I didn't understand these things at a very deep level. I had to bid my career. So it was really, you know, literally starting from scratch and a very challenging, but very rewarding experience to do that. And, um, uh, I'm still learning every single day from really, really smart people. Yeah. The experience in and of itself, I know it started off with like live programming, these live six minute shows and it looked like the amount of transactions that were being done in those six minutes was bananas. And I keep thinking about like the psychology of drop culture, you know, cause I know like even when I bought the stress, I was like, this is a little steep, but I'm gonna show my money over. Or there's a, you know, a collaboration with Pharrell and Murakami. And this is like this psychology of, oh, this is coming out now and there's limited edition. I need to get that. Like, what have you learned about that? And I think that's very different than like the trade show environments where you're walking around like, oh, cool. Right. Um, so yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, no, no. I think drop culture is something that most really sophisticated brands are learning now. And it's agnostic. First, I think it is something that came from streetwear and secret culture. But this idea of scarcity or what I, I think is actually perceived scarcity, you're taking the product and you're limiting the where it's distributed. You're limiting the time frame it's distributed and you're advertising that there is only X amount made drives this emotional behavior from consumers. And that comes across in different ways. It started at maybe like a Supreme line or a Nike drop, but now that can apply to makeup. It can apply to, you know, experiences. It can apply to a hot sauce, right? It can apply to different things. And, you know, there's a great book by um, Seth Godin, who's an author uh, called Purple Cow. It's a marketing book. And he talks about like you're in the mall. Everyone has a big open window with just like a mannequin. And you walk by, someone all of a sudden, had a window that was painted all black with a little hole and said, don't look in here. Like you, there'll be a line out the door for people to just look, right? So people are intrigued by this idea of like perceived scarcity. And, um, you know, we applied that on network, the same way we applied it at ComplexCon. And, you know, some of the things are truly limited, right? Some things are actually not that much different in the availability versus things we would normally do, but it's that time frame and that immediately, and really that's the live video does. So I used to love this app, HQ Trivia. Oh, yeah. Scott Rogowski. Yeah, Scott Rogowski. Yeah, yeah. Friend of mine now. And um, I know Scott too. Yeah, Some of it. He's hilarious. Um, <laughs> but like, there was something about when that app came out, it was like Jeopardy, but in this like live environment. I remember like 2 million people were like, mm-hmm. in live. So I was like, how do you take that and apply it to a product drop? And I was like, basically, that was the inspiration for the product. Like that combined with QBC. I was like, how do you create? It's like, oh, the push goes out. Everyone's got to tune in. They miss out on playing the game. How do you make them feel like they're going to miss out from the product drop? I'm like, that 
combination of like the drop culture with the interface of HQ trivia and a really amazing product. Just like created this formula that creators in some of those drops in the early days, if 50, 70, 90,000 people showing up trying to buy, maybe we had a thousand products, sometimes a hundred products. And like the majority of people are, are left disappointed, which is a weird thing. We're in a culture that's also obsessed with customer satisfaction. You know, you go to a hotel, you go to an airline, they send you a survey. Were you happy? Well, we intentionally were creating an environment where our customers, the majority of which, 99% of which, are unhappy. Right. But for some reason, in this case, that's a good thing. And they wanted more, right? It made them want it more. So it's the reverse psychology of almost everything else that's happening in consumer culture. We want to satisfy. In a way, we want to dissatisfy. Uh, you know, if the majority of people can't have it, then you know that thing they, they wanted was hot. Um, I love that. Like, I got goosebumps over that countercultural point. Right. I, I think and it's, it kind of speaks to what I've learned about you in the brief time that I've known you. Um, specifically, you had a birthday recently, but you don't care about birthdays. Uh, uh, and then I care. Okay. All right. Uh, you do care when I say, you just don't believe in what I say. <laughs> um, but, like, just even even that alone, like, that peculiarity, like, why is that? Why don't you believe in birthdays? Uh, you know, I'm a big believer, and I don't believe it much, of not subscribing to cultural norms. And um, I think there's so many things in our world that are, that have been manufactured, you know, to to create consumer behavior, right? Um, you know, it's almost like the, talk, people talk about the military industrial complex, right? There's a lot of other mass industrial complexes that aren't military facing that are designed to get you to buy things at Christmas, to get you to, you know, buy an engagement ring, to get you to buy these things on these days, right? Some of these things are pleasant. I'm not knocking the idea of buying your mother flowers on Mother Day or you know, things that are pleasant, but in general, there are things that are designed to drive mass amounts of consumer behavior or to get you to subscribe to cultural norms. And I like just like making my own judgments and the things that I want to participate in that I feel organically motivated or, or interested in versus like, oh, everyone else does X, so you should too. Yeah. And I take that to a little bit of an extreme in my own life. I only wear this outfit every single day. I have no other outfits. You know, I don't subscribe to the idea of birthdays, but I do other things that are, they'll make fine beard or what. <laughs> I wonder what one of these weird things. Uh, I gotta think more about it. I just have my own, my own. I, I create my own traditions, my own norms, my own things that are you know that I enjoy. That you know is not because the world told me I had to do X by this age, or I had to you know follow the path that everyone else is right. Which is which is again interesting. I'm going to college. I'm finishing high school. All these things are. You hear that, kids? Um, no, I. Given the the industry you work in, which is all trend. Like, it's all like, oh, that person has that. I want to do that, too. Yeah. Like, and you're surrounded by a number of celebrities on any given day. Um, how does that, how does that thing about you play out in these environments? Like, you know, where everybody's going to parties or, you know, or the perception versus reality. I think it's just more in this mix. I'm not personally a participant in consumer culture. Now, everything I do is actually counterintuitive to what I'm personally interested in and the, the audiences that I serve. So whether it was Agenda or whether it was Cup of Town or Now It's Network or any other thing I've done, everything I'm doing is actually playing directly down the middle of the most extreme lane of like hyper-consumerism, right? I just personally am not interested in buying a watch, having a fancy car, in wearing trend-driven clothing. Uh, now Yeezy, obviously, as a brand is, let's say, dead to the world due to that the person behind it, yeah, I'm going to call that. But like, while it was hot, I anyone I saw wearing that to me is like a sheep. But I don't want to be one of the sheep. I want to, I want to be my own thing and do things my own way. And not, you know, if everyone else is going one way, I just own it. I'm going to go the other way 
and just like carve out my own lane for myself. Um, even though what I do for a job is actually driving people down and I hope they buy more of the trendy shoe and the things like that. And they love it. Some people, that is their, that is the thing that they wear that helps them define themselves and express themselves as a person and why they're different than some guy wearing Dockers or something really boring, right? So there's levels to this. I just feel like I want to take our slacks. Whatever. Okay. Hey. <laughs> the very best. Hey, we're be free. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I just, I want to subscribe to my own or up my ideology. That's, that, that's right. I, you know, I think there's another piece to drop culture, which is, you know, the, you, you spoke to it a little bit, like the unique nature of owning something signature or being able to express the moment I'm fashion design for like 30 years. And, you know, I always look at fashion as like the, the path of least resistance to self-expression, right? Like the, the car, the house, the artwork, those things that I may aspire to, I might not be able to afford, but I can go to the thrift store and like put a really dope look together and still be unique. Um, so I think there's, like you say, 90,000 people show up to get this thing, but then there's the championing few that are like, yeah, I got, um, right. Like there's, there's the, I got these part of the part of it. Um, I, I don't have a question there, but like, I'm just curious as to what your thought is on that. Like people, the, the foam at the top where people are guests. Yeah. I mean, there's different, there's different, uh, densities to the foam, if you will. There's the people, the way top or creating or their friends and family or the influencers getting those things for free to try to get other people to want them either. Then there's the people who got them. Yeah, you know, I out on the street, I see some guy wearing your Jordans. I know that like he either paid a lot of money for those or had the hookup or, you know, he get he, he's into fashion and he's saying something about himself. And I respect that. Uh for myself, I just never want to be involved in anything um at all that like try to signify, express myself uh through through the exhibit of whatever bash whenever and I walk into a room and I see someone wearing the off white AJ uh, AJ ones and wearing a off white jacket and a baked t shirt. It's like it's it's, it's like too much of a cool too, too much too much. <laughs> too much. You know what I, mean? I have the weird thing where I've like I've been observing Gen Z a lot lately and these clusters of friends that just don't matter. Like there's no uniformity and this could be you know old man judgment, but it's also like I I there's you know I knew what me and my friends were into. We could all go like me and my friend high school used my best friend high school used to dress like boys and men. Don't tell me anybody I told you that. But there's like there's such a unique form of expression and acceptance. I think that's the, that's the other part. Is like whatever you're doing, like I'm cool with that. I'm a I'll, I'll rock this. Um, okay, coming on the I think that's actually a really positive part of where we are today, which is when I was growing up in the early to mid '90s as a teenager in Southern California kids got very clearly grouped into like five or six different prototypes there was the jocks there was the skaters there was a goth there was the nerds and you kind of like very clearly fit into one of these four or five prototypes and you all look the same you dress the same as the same music and through the proliferation of the internet and social media i think you're seeing kids have a vast array of interests and now it's very hard to pin down like you could look at that one group before the way they were dressed was the same music it was, it was the same product they bought and now it's much harder to figure people out because kids have a multifaceted interest they could dress like a goth and listen to hip-hop and you know they're hanging out with some kid that dresses like a jock or is a nerd or whatever it's like it's all over the place and i think that's what you were cross i think that it's much harder to target as a market where i think it's much more diverse and interesting and what people are interested in what they're learning and what content they consume is all over the place i think it's just a much more interesting group of kids yeah than before it's like oh the same six kids are cooking the other wearing the same shit listening to the same shit it's not that interesting um sales yep uh we have a, a really good friend in common uh most of it it's gibbons um selling the product oh my god who made 
um, selling the product, you know, and creating the marketplace is one thing. I think one thing you guys have been masterful at is also selling that to other brands. And so when I think about like the Chips Ahoy collaboration or what Young Gravy is doing on the platform or just, you know, all these different sort of brand engagements for something they probably essentially don't understand, right? That you, like I said, they're, when you think about demographics or psychographics, like uh, what is this audience really like? You guys know that there's a cycle of sales and education and then obviously a transaction that happens. Um, how, what's your take on selling the platform to other brands and on one of it? Yeah. Going back to the beginning of my career, I fancied myself as a creative person. I was a designer, but very early on, I felt that understood the necessity to pick up sales early on, whatever I was selling, those t-shirts, trade show booths, you know, conventions and now network and being sales driven is a really important thing and being able to combine the ideology of creativity and sales together. And usually those are two walled off disciplines. I think in our organization, the creativity and, and the go-to-market and the sale is very aligned. And you know, I think we are very early been monetizing through bringing in, I don't know what else you call it, in the corporate America, Fortune 500, non-endemic brands into the platform and giving them access to popular culture in a very authentic way. And you know, very, very early on in the platform, we brought together illegal civilization and this kid, Mikey, who's like a good film director, escape video director, he co-produced that movie mid 80s with uh, Jonah Hill. Yeah. You know, we brought him together with Doritos. You would never think that his brand called the Legal Civilization, which is like an underground skate brand, you know, with Doritos, right? But being able to do that in a cool way, and kids actually bought the product that we created together. And I think mm -hmm. that is one of the key skills that we've cultivated, which is like these up-and-coming creatives want to find new ways to make money. They want to get funding for creative projects. And like these brands want to touch on authentic culture that actually resonates with kids in an authentic way. And how can we do that? I think that's been one of the things that we recognize. And some people who I talk to in the creative field are like allergic to the idea of sponsorship or corporate America. And, you know, that's fine. Those people will do well. But I think there's actually a large group of those creatives that are very eager to try to unlock some of that funding so they can actually subsidize some of their most creative ideas and actually do it, things they could do on their own. Right. So I think what we do is really important and it is actually solving a problem for both the brands and for the creatives. And, and yeah, sometimes that was totally your question. You no, know, oh, I think it's great because also, you know, I've always looked at whatever what I call it influencer or creator relationships is like, it's, it's sometimes not about the transaction, it's about the opportunity. And if you can empower a creator to do something ab above and beyond what they've been able to do previously. I'll be if it's Doritos, you know, as long as it's not an ethanol brand, right? They, you know, I don't think Doritos is killing anybody other than a car disease. Um, <laughs> but I love, I, love, I, love, I love Doritos. Uh, no, but I, I just think about that, like, idea of brand safety also as part of that. Like, yeah, legal civilization, like, there's a little bit of hand-holding in the sales cycle to make them truly understand. And then, again, convert. I, I think a lot of corporate brands are generally, they want to be in the creator economy. But, you know, sometimes their idea of brand safety and, and, you know, who's controversial and who's not, especially in the world we're in now, cancel culture, all these things like brands are hesitant to touch some people at the bleeding edge of culture. And I think that's an art trying to get people comfortable with certain people. And it's interesting. Sometimes they'll, you know, they'll do a national campaign with someone who, you know, I don't know, shot someone, but then they won't touch this guy because he used the wrong words in Instagram or so it's really interesting. And you said, it's a Chris Rock. Yeah, he shot, he shot someone at Walmart. He shot. We're not ready to use the word yet. This episode, um, it'll come up maybe episode eleven. 
Um, a promise? No, just no, bro. The, um, I don't know, when I think about like you as a leader, when, before the conversation started, you like, make sure you come and see a let, let the founder. Uh, and I didn't mean to mock you, like, but, um, but I, I think that's really important, you know, aspect of how you want to present. And I, you also want to honor like the ecosystem of people you've built around you. And like, just tell me about like team building and your perspective as a leader. Yeah. Uh, my perspective as a leader changes, grows, evolves, devolves every direction, every single day. Um, when I started a business, I was very young. I had no college, no formal training. Never worked at a big company, and you know, I just kind of started fresh. But better for us, I think that's an advantage, opposed to a disadvantage. But I didn't even understand the idea that I was a leader. Now, at the beginning, a two-person organization, a three-person organization, calendar knows, employee number one in the agenda. And I started with just my friends from high school. So it was very, very organic, right? And the things I'm doing in the, from a leadership perspective was pushing the ball forward every day. But as I grow now to an organization of 150 plus people in network to, you know, the handful I had at, at Agenda, right? It's, it's totally changes. So I think, you know, number one, I need to be the person that gets up every day, motivates the team and sets the North Star and, you know, points where we're going and, and lets them see that I'm aggressively going towards that goal because if they don't see me going towards it, then they're certainly not going to do it, right? So I think the idea of like being in the trenches with your troops and working, setting the pace and actually showing them you're willing to work harder than they are is what motivates people to want to follow you because you're just like the person that's standing in the back pointing and say, go do it, you know, go, go push that rock up the hill. They don't want to do it. Right. So I think it's so much about like showing, setting the pace by example is probably one of the biggest things I've learned. Uh, and, and trying to, you know, like something like Gary, he talks about this a lot, but like being an empathetic leader, like just like, I think in the past when I was a bad leader, I was like so obsessed with winning that I was probably not kind, not nice to my team, not empathetic to their personal situations. And like, you know, as I've evolved, being more empathetic while still setting an aggressive pace to win, those two things don't need to be conflicting ideas. You can have a kind of like a fast-paced, results-driven organization that also cares about people. And I think getting good people to want to come work for you is based on them liking you, them believing in you, them liking you as a person outside of, you know, your ability to achieve or not achieve. We have in, in our industry a lot of things we call like a high-performing asshole. And like, you don't want to be that, right? It's like, they win, but like no one wants to work with that person. So it's like, how do you balance the idea of like empathy, likability, and like caring about your team with like getting shit done? I think that's ultimately like when I'm, when I'm where I'm at at balancing into the past, that probably lead too much one direction or the other. Um, what was the tipping point for that? Like, was there, was there an incident? Was there a moment or was it just like somebody was like, hey, man. <laughs> like what? Where, where did that, I mean, it's a combination of things. You lose a couple of key people or 10x contributors along the way. They go to other opportunities. You reflect on why you lost that person. Being able to hold on to top performers is probably one of the biggest things that you can do in building an organization. And if all the best people are constantly walking out the door, then what do you have, right? And so I think combination of losing some people, getting some critical feedback, and then just doing a lot of listening, listening to podcasts, reading books, doing things like, you know, knowledge learned over time through experience and other people's knowledge and just kind of like letting that absorb it, it is really how I got there. Here's something fun. Yeah. Uh, on LinkedIn. Yeah. You started a company called Network a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, spelled the same way. <laughs> and it was described as, hold on, I, 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 let's see if I can read. Uh, armed with key knowledge of fashion trends, social media, marketing, and merchandising, we seamlessly tell your brand story in a consistent and focused manner with an unparalleled attention to detail. 
as do I. What did you say? Like, why recycle the name? Like, why? And, you know, what's the alliteration there? So I started a company called The Jet in 2003, which is a B2B fashion trade show company. The same year, I started another company that was all part of a company called The Jet and Showrooms, which is an agency. So what people think of what CAA or Endeavor does for actors and musicians, we did for brands. We represented them. We found mostly brands from outside the U.S. and signed them to exclusive deals to run their U.S. sales and marketing distribution in the U.S. Um, over time, as Agenda Trade Show got big, as Agenda Showroom got big, those two names being the same got confusing. We spun out that business of Newlands called Network, which Kelly was actually the president of. Um, and uh, that business derived. And over the years, we signed a company called Herschel Supply Bags, which ended up being a massive you know, company. And you know, we got with them in their first year of business, signed them to be exclusive uh, sales deal in the US. And that business got so big that over the years, uh, they came and actually acquired the network from myself, Walt Keller. Um, but they didn't want the name of the company. They wanted to become their US sales and marketing distribution. And, uh, and we held on to the name and I ended up recycling the name onto this new project years later after it had been dormant. Um, so, you know, the same way that you see someone like Richard Branson, uh, you know, recycling Virgin into all kinds of different, whether it's space or cruises or airlines or record labels, right? Like had to attach it to the name. Which is ironic because you can't recycle Virgin. <laughs> no. But one time maybe that's right. But, you know, something about the name, like Home Shopping Network, you know, right. people talk about like network effects. People talk about like, what's your, you know, are you well networked? I think like the name to me had a lot of meaning in every purpose when you're trying to build marketplaces or agencies or, you know, it's just like, it, it, it has a meaning to me that is very purposeful. That's beautiful. Um, you're also involved in hot sauce, beach towels. Um, there's cannabis trade show. There's, you know, there's like, what, what's the Aaron Levant, uh, I'm going to say superpower. Like, cause I think when people like float from one sort of economy or project or business to another, there is like a thread that follows them and ties it all together. You know, the common denominator is you like, what is your, what's the Levant special sauce? Not, not just on her. I don't know if there's a Levant special sauce. I think my special sauce is that I'm intellectually curious and I try a lot of things. I've been lucky enough that a lot of those things have worked out. I meet people or I have ideas that are held in common with other people who are my friends or past work associates and we galvanize around ideas. And then I've been lucky enough because of some early successes, had the resources to help bring those ideas to reality, which is really means you got a smart group of people sitting around the table with a fun idea instead of going out and hoping that someone else will see the value in our idea and ask me to give us money. I've had the ability to put money into those ideas off of a, an idea dropped out of the back of a napkin. We were able to get some things off the ground faster. And then those companies have gone and be very successful and raise money and sell, et cetera. So, you know, I think the common denominator is like, I'm constantly engaged in conversation with interesting people, whether those people are extremely successful or people are just starting out just out of college with a fresh idea or people that used to work for me have an idea and I'm able to identify with those people and their, their hustle really, like who I think is a great hustler who's really creative. And then I can come in early before it really is an investable business idea, we can get those things off the ground. And, you know, I think that's, uh, I guess, the secret sauce of my ad one. That's beautiful. I, I, you know, and I think in that, you know, in the same vein, there's always a new thing popping up, right? Like, uh, we live in an era right now where everybody's talking about artificial intelligence, Web3 and metaverse, and like, you have a pretty solid product in network. And I'm sure there's always like a thought, like, what can we do in this? this space and what can we do in that space and 
like, well, how do you balance the, that decision-making process? What do you jump into? What do you leave alone? What do you wait on? What do you test? Like, uh, how does how does that work yeah. in the development? I'm less disciplined than I should be. And a manifestation of that is, I don't know if it was a year ago or two years ago, with this crazy run NFTs, right? Everyone all set went from nothing to being a center of life sketch in a matter of three months, right? And I allowed myself to take my eye off the ball of the core product that we're building and we're insane shit. And a lot of people did this, right? Everyone all of a sudden spun up an NFT something. Doing it, but it really, I don't remember, right. like end of 2021, early 2022, it was a fever pitch around this. And I allowed us to take our eye off the ball and say, we're going to launch an NFT vertical. And we made about two and a half billion bucks in a very short period of time. But the time and energy that we lost at taking our eye off a core product, I believe set us back six months to a year on the overall company. And, you know, so I would say generally these macro trends, why you shouldn't ignore them, it's really hard to tell which ones are here to stay and which ones are of that. And I think it's best not to just jump and jump and jump and try to stay on top of the trend. You got to see through what you're doing in a really meaningful way and have a maniacal focus on that. And that's the the older me being more mature. And I think in the past, and even in the past two years, then if you use example, allowed myself to be distracted by those things. Now, that's what you actually do. doesn't mean that I haven't read and listen to 20 podcasts about what AI is doing, how it's disrupting, thinking about how that as a productivity tool can change the amount of engineers we need or how you can incorporate that to increase customer experience. Something like NFTs was just like complete, right? Mm-hmm. But that turned complete distraction. So how do you balance that? But I think listening and learning a lot and seeing longevity things, if something's going to be a real thing, just because you don't do it in the first week doesn't just have to be here. Sometimes there's something called the second mover advantage, right? Some people out top of the first mover advantage. Mm-hmm. I think it's actually been proven if you look at social media, you know, Facebook was not the first social media company, right? We had Friendster, MySpace, Facebook was actually the third mover in that space, really. I never where Twitter fell in my timeline, but like, I think you actually better be a second mover advantage. You don't need to jump right away and then have a pulse. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer in it. Um, I think about um, the title, Masters of Craft Vision, which is kind of ironic that that I also have a belief that there is no mastery. Just kind of keep going and keep learning things. You unlock other layers. But what is one thing that you are continually, you know, wanting to master right now? Talk about some other transparencies in in your personal development. But like, what is a thing that you're working on master? Good question. You know, I know we talked about leadership. That's something that I think about a lot as the organization gets bigger. My day changes from doing individual specific tasks, talking to customers, other things to, to, to try to constantly become a better leader and be a more effective leader. And I think that's a constant journey that never ends. And I probably will never master that. Um, but I think in general, try to master just understanding consumer mentality and what makes people tick and what makes people interested in products, services, and what is, you know, other than just like, my gut feeling like is this going to work? Is this going to work? By getting a better understanding and getting really down to a, a science of like how to roll things out, how to create things that, that people are going to resonate with. And I think that is a lot about, yes, creating an amazing product or service whenever it is, but it's a lot about storytelling, marketing and understanding consumer mentality or psychology uh, that goes along with. And, you know, I'm sure you've watched a lot of YouTube videos, things about like the way Steve Jobs with market Apple was never talking about Simon Sinek has a great video about this. Talked about like Apple never made a, a commercial that said like buy our computer. It has the most RAM and the most memory and the best 
the best warranty. Yep. He never said any of this stuff. It's like, think different, right? It was like, you know, if you're selling a truck, you know, you have it driving through the mud and slow motion, and you're like, by the way, it has a good warranty, a great engine. You know, it's like the way the human brain receives information is never logically, it's always illogically followed by logical. And it's like the way I think and want to present information to people starts with logical, and it's actually training yourself to reverse and invert that 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 selling or communication to her. It was probably the hardest thing to try to master. Yeah. And everything we give internally, externally, wherever. Yeah, no, it's it it's a like a complex matrix of decision making, right? Yeah. And and I think about like even in the in the spirit of fashion or collectibles and all these things, like sometimes you're like, is that really the thing that's that's popping right now? Like uh, those uh, those Woody boots from you know the Woody from uh, my Toy Story. The, 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 you know those big like play, like big red boots. Yes, thank you. It's a, it's a it's an Astro boot. Right. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, like I didn't see that coming. Like, I don't think there's a crypt, like, unlike in other forms where you can be a fast follower or you can like, oh, this is consumer behavior. So let's build a technology, you know, platform to further that, um, there's less of a crystal ball in, in this space. Um, is that true? Or am I making stuff up? It's no crystal ball. It seems to be people are hyper creative and innovative can put it out an idea that no one even knew or thought of, or if you explained it to someone in like a investor, like, would you invest in this idea? Most people like bombing on it. Right. But then someone puts out that kit, Gabriel from that company, Mischief is really clever. And like, I would say that was some of those clever guys I met, you know, like, yeah, if they took that to like a, a sneaker investor and say, can we make this huge red EV hate booth that looks like you're in a cartoon? No one would love that, but they consumers see it. And it's like having the courage and the bolt is to try to get an idea like that across is what makes him make that breakthrough a totally viral. So, um, forget what your, your actual question was, but like, there, there's no crystal, there's no crystal ball. <laughs> and most things that, you know, I guess catch consumer attention in mass are usually, you know, going back to the Seth Godin thing, the purple cow, you know, it sticks out. It, it, the book is also, can I talk about the window thing? You're driving on a country road for a while. You're like, Oh, there's a cow. And after a while, stop looking. Hell, something's a purple cow. You're going to start looking. So how do you like create that purple cow? And like, that's, that's the art business marketing in anything whatever whatever segment you're purple cops will be a brain that's what I'm yeah saying. um all right last but not least um what's what's next with the you know with the platform with you like when do you have your eyes set on yeah tell us a little bit of a secret if you got lost <laughs> um yeah um platform it's a constant evolution every day building marketplaces building platforms never really stops introducing new segments trying to grow international releasing new features it's like a never ending game of improvement it's almost like trying to stay in shape it's like we constantly have to keep working out every week and like making small gains and hopefully and then you've had a big innovative home run that becomes the 10x growth factor right that could be a category that could be a host that could be a region you go into right you know so all those things will constantly look at constantly toying with it might uh, be the host yeah it could be a host <laughs> i know um so you know i think with network it's it's never going to stop and i'm four and a half years into what is usually a 10 year journey to find the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow agenda took me 10 years. Like most people have this like overnight success kind of like mentality. They think things happen really fast. Usually it's a long time with a lot of thankless years. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're just heads down working, trying to try to build something great and find that innovation and that 10 X contributor somewhere along that path. And we're, we're squarely in the middle of that. And then with me in general, all I say is that I'm, I'm doing more, I guess investing, advising to startups. I just invested in a you know, exciting new um, sunscreen brand, which is launching this year, which I'm excited about. Um, 
I'm interested in that because I want to be involved with products that serve a purpose. I've done a lot of things like that are really exciting from a consumer culture standpoint, but like ultimately it's to serve any purpose. No one needs that t-shirt or that sneaker to survive. But like, okay, we can say like skin cancer rates are rising, you know, like there's a product. You can make sunscreen cool and get people to use it every day. It's actually solving a real problem. And I think I look back on my career while I've been very effective at helping people move, you know, cotton and rubber at mass scale in various forms, like I never really helped anyone or did anything. So while sunscreen can be cool and it's a beauty product, it also serves a purpose. And I want to be involved in more things that actually solve the problem, serve a purpose and have more than just a rapid consumerism use. Uh, it doesn't mean the branding shouldn't be awesome. The campaigns can't absolutely, but like, how do you do something that actually serves a tangible purpose and eventually ought to do that kind of stuff full time? People, I'm, look, I love, I love this like growth. Like, you know, like I go, I go, you know, we started off with you as 19 and then like all these sort of lessons you've learned incrementally over the years. That's pretty awesome. Oh, Caleb. <laughs> you got any questions? Uh, no. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Caleb, we met Caleb earlier. He had to run out and get pizza because of that. I was supposed to have for that. Um, cool, man. Look, thank you for for joining us. This has been awesome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You have any questions for me? I mean, you know, I'm the first guest. Oh, how did I do? I don't know. How did I know? This is this more your experience than it is mine. How did I do? You're good. Uh, no, you did great. Thank you. Thank you. All right.